Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. I'm never going to get used to being called doctor. I didn't get my doctorate until 2018. But my full name is Mark Gordon Fee, and so some of you may have heard my father's name, Gordon Fee, teaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. So when I ever hear Dr. Fee, that's my dad. I'm just Mark. <clears throat> and, uh, and it's really fun, actually, to be in this building, in this church, because probably, I don't know if somebody is still old enough to remember, but we moved here from Chicago in 1974. In the summer of 75, we came to church here when this couple named George and Kathy Ensworth attended here and did Dawn Treaders. And my sister and I sang in Don Treaders, and my first song I ever wrote, and I've written over 80 of them, the first song I ever wrote, we did and sang in this church that year in 1976. And I haven't been in the building since. <laughs> so it was really weird to walk through those doors today and go, oh, baby. Oh, and by the way, hello for, to you out there in uh, what? Online, there's the word I'm looking for. I'm tired. I've been teaching all weekend. Yeah, I know, right? You may have to fill in some of my other words as we go along here. And uh, so anyway, it's really fun to be here with you guys. And uh, it was a really fun thing when I got to meet Bill, and he called me those six months later, and he's like, Mark, this stuff really works. It's changing me. Can we talk? You know, and so we continue to talk, and when we talk, it's usually for hours, and uh, it's been really fun. But as he mentioned, what we've been doing this weekend, it used to be called First Loved to Love, because <clears throat> God used First John 4.19 to completely rescue and change my relationship with forever. When I was 18 years old, a Christian, I am now 53 years old, a Christian, I turned 64 or 65 this coming Saturday. I'm married. Just, we just celebrated 40 years. I have five children, 37 to 29. Four of them are married, and we're expecting our first two grandbabies in March. Amen. So, woohoo! <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway, so my 18th year as a Christian, though, I really wasn't enjoying being a Christian very much. When I first came to know Jesus, and I experienced forgiveness of sins and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, there was unbelievable joy, unbelievable sense of his love. And this was the spring of seventh grade. And by the end of eighth grade, everybody signed my yearbook to mark the Jesus freak. And the reason was is because I couldn't help but wanting everybody to know Jesus. As the years have gone by, I realized that so much of our gospel presentations are a destination message. Avoid this destination and go to this one. But when I came to know Jesus, it was a relationship message where I encountered God in such a way that it was so profound and so powerful. I was like the woman at the well. Come meet the guy. Come meet the guy. You know? But 18 years later, 
after Wheaton College, after Gordon-Conwell Seminary, after oodles of Bible studies and whatever else, somehow by 31 years old, I didn't enjoy being a Christian very much anymore. It's like, God, where'd the joy go? Why do I not experience that very often? And you said it was supposed to be easy, light, and rest for our souls, but it feels a lot of times heavy, hard, and stressful. What's happened? Well, it was in that desperation that I went to read 1 John 4.19, especially because I also realized that I wasn't very loving. And that's the primary thing we're supposed to be known for, right? How are people supposed to recognize those who follow Jesus? It's supposed to be by this extraordinary love we have for one another and for them. And I was so very, very aware that I wasn't very loving. And it was in that desperation, by the end of my first year as a lead pastor, I said, Lord, if you don't change my heart and help me love better, then I'm out. I'd been a carpenter from high school all the way through seminary and to the end, three years after seminary. So I said, I'll just go back and keep building because I'm good at that and I like it. What business do I have being a lead pastor if I'm not a very good example or model of the thing that matters most? And it was in that moment that I went to 1 John 4 because I knew it was about love and I started reading. Dear children, let us love one another because love comes from God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, but whoever loves knows God because God is love. Keep on reading, and I got to 419, and then these words that changed my life. We love because he first loved us. It is a fact, but in that moment, that day, as my brother-in-law just said recently, and I went, ooh, that was really good. In that incredibly audible, non-audible way that you just know that you know, God has talked to you through that passage. He spoke it to my heart and said, Mark, you got it all wrong, son. It's not me coming and zapping your heart somehow, and suddenly you're going to be this, woohoo, I'm an amazing lover of God and others. No, he said, you got it all wrong. You love because I first love you, which means you got to come to me, who is love, and let me love you first. And then you'll love because... In a moment, I'm going to share with you the second passage that together, everything, everything changed at that point. So that's what we've been doing this weekend, but we actually changed it. It was fun. I don't know if that's why Bill picked the passage that he did this morning, but we changed the title of it. Instead of first loved to love, come and be loved so that you can love, we changed it to taste and see. Because of David saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's 19 times in the Old Testament where just the pure statement, the Lord is good, is written. That's fact. That's truth. But David changes it by saying, no, goodness isn't just to be understood. Goodness is to be experienced. Right? You can say peach is good. That's an opinion. But if somebody goes, pizza, whoo, baby, so good. That's somebody who's actually tasted it. Right, what we long for, what David's saying is that I want everybody who actually is in relationship with God, that they wouldn't just say, oh, the Lord's good. He would go, oh, baby, the Lord is just so, mm, mm, good. The sound of somebody who's experienced that goodness. Come on, y'all, you can smile, you can laugh, you can do anything. Just let me know you're live out there. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I know I'm not always terribly funny, but whatever. A little the responses are fun. 
Well, anyway, so we changed the tile, and that's what we've been doing this weekend. Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday, this afternoon, we will finish. And essentially, it's about how can we engage the Holy Spirit in prayer? How can we engage the Scripture, as Bill mentioned? And then how can we think about our loving interactions in a way that we can actually be loved by God so we can turn around and love as He has loved us and because He has first loved us? So we're going to finish that out today. The series itself has seven sessions in it. All we do are four on the weekend. And what I'm going to share today, which is really fun because I almost never get to do it, is the final session that's called Potluck, Loving God to Bring Him Pleasure. All right. And Morgan, oh, um, do, you, do you have to be there with the slides at this point? Can you and um, Jim come up here just so that you're ready when I need you? These guys have been asked to do something and they don't know what they're doing. But I promise you, it'll be super easy and super enjoyable. And it'll last all of about 30 seconds to a minute. So be at peace. I just want you here ready when it comes time. You can just be right there in that, that little open space right there. You can sit right there, and then I'll call you up. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> okay, so as you see, it says potluck, loving God to bring him pleasure. If you asked a friend to come to a Sunday morning church service like this. Is this what you would think? Whoops, I forgot to turn it on. Let's try that again. Do you think this is what they would think? If they were coming to church on a Sunday morning, sitting in this service, is this what your outside friends would think? Somebody says yes. Or would they think this? The preacher standing there with the big pulpit Bible and, I mean, I know you're laughing, but do you realize that inside and the out, outside of the church, this is often people's perception of Christianity. It's about commands, it's about rules, it's about you need to do right and not wrong, be good and not bad, right? So again, I just want you to see this picture again. Would they actually think, ooh, I want to go and sit in this room here because this is what we'll experience? Or, again, is it that they would think, I ain't going there. I don't need somebody pointing me and telling me how bad I am and what I need to do to change my behavior or whatever. Now, why? Why would people think that image, even inside and outside the church? Well, most of you have probably heard the phrase, Great Commission, right? Great Commission, Great Command. Actually, the words great commission are not even in the text. The word great and the word commission doesn't even exist in the passage. That's something we put with it. But I point it out because it's probably something you've heard oodles of times, right? Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then comes this line, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It would be easy to get the impression, right, that it's all about commands, about obedience. Well, according to the rabbis, <laughs> there is 613 Old Testament commands. That could kind of give you an idea why they think it's all about commands. <laughs> There's quite a few of them. And then you have there the Gospels. For my dissertation, I had to go through all the 
read the Gospels. Because one day I actually took my phone out and said, hey, Siri, how many commands of Jesus are there? Anybody know? Well, I already clicked the slide. The thing is, when I said, hey, Siri, how many commands of Jesus are there? The lowest one, somebody had 39. The highest one, somebody had 120. And I went, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to do this myself. <laughs> so I slowly reread through the Gospels, and I put 73-ish because some of them are a little tough to tell whether, as I was looking what the others had, you know, well, I wouldn't have called that really a command of Jesus or maybe this or that, but I essentially came up with 73. But then you got the New Testament letters. How many of the authors say, do this and don't do that? I don't know what the total amount is, but it's easy to see how inside and outside the church, people think that the primary thing about our faith is about obedience to commands. Well then, remember I mentioned it just a moment ago, where i got to remember, I'm seeing here, I don't have to look behind me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> remember this passage at the bottom of the screen there. Right? When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You understand that that has nothing to do with you being physically tired. Weary and burdened had everything to do with being overwhelmed with all those commands, and particularly the applications and interpretations of the Pharisees. So they felt like they could barely move without fear that they were going to mess up. And if they messed up, there would be negative consequences. So you try, try, try hard to be good so there would be positive blessings in their lives, Right? Well, the question is, though, is that Jesus said, take my yoke and learn from me. And if you do so, you'll find rest for your souls because it's easy and light. And here in my 18th year of being a Christian, when I was 31 years old, right, I'm going, Jesus, what did I miss? Because after 18 years, I have read through the Old Testament, we've taught it, we've studied it, all the letters, all the gospels, and I'm feeling the weight of all that, and it doesn't feel easy, light, and rest. In fact, most of the time, it's feeling heavy, hard, and stressful. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't liking being a Christian very much anymore. And it was really tough to, want to invite somebody into it. <laughs> I mean, it really affects evangelism. That's why I think overall we resort to a destination message. Don't go here, but go to here. If it's a relationship message, how is our relationship with God? Is it full of joy and peace and it's really easy and light and whatever so okay Jesus what is it what did I miss well one of the things of course we're all familiar with this right one day somebody says of the 613 which one is the greatest to which Jesus gives two and says they're both equal both equal. They're not like this. They are like this. Love God and love your neighbor. Basically two parts of the one greatest command. But then in Matthew's version, he actually says, for all of the commands hang on these two commands. So here he just shrunk down from 613. He took two. And then he says, but all the rest of them hang on those commands. Well, what does that mean? What that means is that all the rest of the commands are not rules to try to be kept, but they're everything about relationship with God and with each other. Every single command is what does or does not love God and what does or does not love your neighbor. This is one of the most horrible things about commands, and i got to say this as carefully as I can, 
You know the word sin. Okay, the, the sin nature, right? At the heart of the sin nature is selfishness, regardless of any impact on anybody else. It's me, 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 whatever I want, whatever I do, and I don't care how it affects you. But how it manifests itself is in wrong and harm to God and to our neighbor. It's not failure to keep a rule. When we think of sin as keeping rules, then we think, well, everybody breaks rules from time to time. It's no big deal. But if you ask somebody who got murdered, I think they would feel like that was pretty wrong and harming. <laughs> okay, it didn't come off very funny, but you know what I mean. You know, it's not like the person goes around, wow, shoot, Lord, I murdered today. Darn it. But everybody kind of breaks rules from time to time. You follow what I'm saying? Sin is about relationship. It's about wrong and harm. And all of the other 611 commands are simply, even Jesus' commands. I did that, and I put them in columns. And every single thing that Jesus taught was one way or another that loves or does not love God or loves or does not love their neighbor, right? In other words, if you go out and you're thinking about loving your neighbor, and that's the only thing that's on your mind, right? And loving your neighbor as yourself, you come across somebody, and what's your name? Kelly. Kelly, and I see Kelly, and I'm going, Lord, what does loving her look like? And it might be compassion, and then it might be kindness, and then it might be forgiveness, and then it might be helping, and then it might be this, 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 and this. And over time, over days, over months, you fulfill all the rest. Because you can't go out every day going, 73, 73, can I do all 73? It's like a silly, right? If our kids were little and they went out and played and they come in, you're tucking them in bed and say, so what'd you do today? Oh, Dad, I rode my bike. Yeah, but did you play game boards and did you play tag? Did you play hide and seek? Did you do this? Did you do that? I mean, you never do that to a child. Because play is full of options and freedom. Well, so is the love of God. And it's going to manifest based on the person's need and behavior in front of you. But you only have to think about the one. Love God and love your neighbor, right? Well, then Paul actually went so far as to moving it from two to one, right? Paul says, for the entire law is summed up in the one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, that's easy light and rest. I mean, all I have to do is get up each day and go out the door and just think about how to love. It. <clears throat> but then here's the craziest thing, and this is the other passage, 1 John 4, 19. But then one day when he finally helped me see this command and understand it, he gave on the last night, the last words of Jesus at the Passover, remember? He gave this new command. Love one another as I, Jesus, have loved you. A couple chapters later, he actually makes it his own personal command. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, the question is, is new. Why call it new? If the old one worked, the original one worked, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, fulfilled the law, it was all working. Why did he feel compelled to have to give a new one? In my dissertation, right, you wouldn't think you'd have to look up the word new in the Greek. You know, like probably Bill's done it sometimes when it says all. I looked up all and it means all in Greek, you know. 
the same thing with new, you know, you're just kind of like new. I guess it's brand new or something. I don't know. But I look up the word new, and there's what the three words were in the Greek dictionary. Unknown, strange, and remarkable. Wow. So then you had to ask, so what's so unknown, strange, and remarkable about this command? Well, you might think it's got a different ending, right? The original love command, you see that it ends as loved, as, as yourself, sorry. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the new command has this new clause. As I, Jesus, have loved you. That's what's really new. So then you have to ask yourself again, what makes as I have loved you unknown, strange, and remarkable? And I don't have to ask for two volunteers because we already asked ahead of time. So now you guys, if you could come. And we have to kind of stay right in here. So they, you might have, well, no, you were the one doing it. So keep coming on. <laughs> So sorry for you that are online. Um, Jim, if you'd stand right here, though. Hopefully you can see us okay. But here's, I want to show you, and I actually did this by accident one day. But like I said, 1 John 4.19 and this changed everything for me. When I kind of did it just like this to illustrate something, didn't mean to do it this way, but here's what happened. Had a couple come up just like this. And I did this. Jim, would you please love Morgan as I, Mark Fee, have loved you? <laughs> sure. Okay, don't miss that face, okay? Dude, can I give you a hug? Sure. Oh, love you, dude. So glad you're here. So let's try again. Jim, would you please love Morgan as I, Mark Fee, have loved you? Thanks, guys. But please do not miss the utter, utter profoundness. What made that new and unstrange and remarkable is because the first time when I asked him to love as I had loved him, I was deliberate to make sure Jim and I had never had an interaction before. And you saw he gets kind of flustered and laughing and smiling and nervous energy, even puts his hands up like this for a minute. But then after I gave him just a little experience of love and then say, would you please love Morgan as I have loved you, what did he do? <laughs> Not a moment's hesitation. You see, what makes the command unknown, strange, and remarkable, that unlike as yourself, which is empathy-based, Jesus defined it in Matthew 7, 12, do to others what you'd have them do to you. In this command, the only way you can obey it is you actually have to be loved by Jesus first. Right? Jim, Jim was frozen. But then when he was loved by me, he could love as I had loved him. And the difficulty is that all these years, nobody's ever paused to think the disciples were loved by Jesus, right? For three years. If it was three years, 365 days, let's say 10 hours a day, that would be 11,000 hours. They were loved by Jesus. They observed his love and they participated with him in loving. But maybe at this moment you're thinking the question, but what about us? 
How do we get loved by Jesus with words and actions in an embodied way today so that we can turn around and love us? Well, the problem is you're just going to have to ask your buddies who came here or wait till we come next time and you should come because the activities that we do are actually a way by the Spirit that you can be loved with words and actions in an embodied way by Jesus that you can turn around and give away what you've experienced. That's what we were doing this weekend and we're going to finish it up this afternoon. Okay, <clears throat> that took a little longer. But part of my reason just even being here is that I'm just so hoping you guys would come. It'll change your life. Bill just read the paper, heard me talk for a couple hours and read the paper, and it began to change him. So part of this, I did this much time up front just to kind of say, please consider, taste and see. Come taste and see. Come learn how to taste and see of the goodness of God. It'll change your life. That I can guarantee because God shows up and loves you. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. And I've been doing this now since the day that he first spoke 1 John 4, 19 to me. And then this, this passage, I have been doing this now for 34 years. I do it almost every single morning, if at all possible. I still am as excited about it as the very first day, the same way that I'm excited to get up and be loved by Robin and to love Robin as I was the day when I married her. Do you understand? It's not about knowing that God loves you. I know Robin loves me. She told me that 40 years ago, December 18th. But I don't get up every day, don't even pay attention to her, and just think, does Robin love me? Yep, she told me so, December 18th, 1982. There's a sense, in a little way, that sometimes we just keep going back to the cross and covenant like that was the supreme way that he loved us? Absolutely. But the joy of being in relationship is being loved by God and loving God. And being loved by one another and loving one another. That's what makes the joy happen. It's not about just knowing that God loves us. But it's learning how to be loved, to taste and see his love. That's what changes us. And then, like you saw, right, that Jim couldn't help himself. Then you go out of your alone time every day and go, where's another human being that I can love the way that he's loved me? And you know when you're doing that all the time, it's just possible that somebody might go, that might be one of those Jesus guys. <laughs> because they do this really crazy, strange, unknown kind of love thing, you know. All it really is is just deep compassion, kindness, Sharing, listening, forgiving. But most of us leave our quiet time, I think, at least I started to for many, many years, is you go in and you read about, and then you repent for all the ways you're not measuring up, and then you go out into public and do everything you can to try not to fail again. Make sense? And that's not very fun to want to invite people into that. Do you follow? When I started teaching this to my church, we were 70 people. Within five years, we were over 400. Not a single message on evangelism. Not a single message on evangelism. Because what happened is it turned my whole church into the woman at the well. 
They were encountering love so often they'd go home, their lives were changed, and people kept asking, what's happened to you? And you know what they would say? Their invite was, come to church. God is there and you'll get loved. Have you been inviting anybody to come to church that way? In other words, back to that picture. Did all those smiling faces Perception matters, right? So finally, here we go to the main thing. Now I'm going to have to go through these much faster. But this final session, it's called Potluck, and it's specifically about <clears throat> loving God. But the primary title is, what about loving God to bring him pleasure? Why would that be the question? What do you mean, loving God to bring him pleasure? And why even use the word pleasure? Well, because it was Paul, again. Paul's the one who said, find out what pleases or is pleasing to the Lord, and once you do, make it your goal to please Him. I went, okay. But even then, I'm thinking about, Lord, what is that? Remember the five love languages. Like, God, do you have a love language? So I started hunting through the Scriptures for the word pleasure, and then I also was looking for words like delight. And thought, right, because if you feel really loved, you know, there's delight in that, right? You feel delight, thank you, so awesome. There's pleasure to be had, right? Well, here's something that brings God pleasure. It was a really fun worship team. You had no idea that I was going to talk about worship for a moment this morning. Come, now is the time to worship, right? We did worship. That's one way we know it brings pleasure to God, really loves Him. But the critical thing is, is what does that mean to you? When you see, read, hear someone say worship, how do you hear it most of the time? We are going to have worship for the first 15 minutes. Or this is the worship time. Even though we call it a worship service, we constantly refer to the music singing time. I see a few heads nod, right? Would you probably answer that way if you just heard... First thing that comes to mind when you hear worship, is that not what you would probably think right off the bat? So that it might look something like this, like we did this morning. But maybe it should look like this. It's not that it can't have some of this, but wouldn't it be something if you were thinking about worship looks like this? You're going to mark Seriously? That's a potluck. Precisely. Why would I do that? Well, in Jesus' day, and I'm going to do a little word study here for just a second. The word worship in Jesus' day, especially in the Greek language, proskuneo is where we get the word prostrate, bow down to. It often gets translated worship, but it primarily had the idea that it was this internal, like fear. You also see the word fear up there. Fear to mean respect and honor. First time I ever went into a Catholic church, you know, and I was watching everybody before they went into the pew, you know, they would do this. Or sometimes they'd walk in front of the altar and they would bow there too. And I, I said, I'd never even seen that before. I'd always come into church and you just chat and you sit down, right? But there was something about that that the first time I found out what the meaning of this word was, to bow down, it's that that's what people did. You know, you see in a movie when the king comes, people get on their faces in honor and respect. 
That's the first word for worship, when you have this internal idea about who it is and whose presence you're in, that we bow down. But the second word is latrauo, which often gets translated worship. But when it's paired with proskuneo, latrauo is paired. It means to serve in a general way, but when it's paired with proskuneo, it meant the activity that the priest did to offer sacrifices, which then... Here's the most clearest one. Remember when Jesus was out there with the devil? And the devil says, worship me and I'll give you everything. To which Jesus responds, worship proskineses. Bow down to the Lord God. And latru... Latruases. <laughs> I know it in its original form. And worship, serve, offer sacrifices to him only. You don't hear him say, go to temple, spend the first 15 minutes singing songs. Okay, I'm not making fun of that necessarily, but I'm just trying to shake up your brain a little bit here. Do you guys need to stand up? <laughs> I just don't know how long you're used to. <laughs> Bill was kind to go, Mark, just be yourself. But I know there's a limitation. I'm sure something's in the in the oven or whatever, right? So I'm trying to go as fast as I can. But here's the thing. In the time of Jesus, if somebody said the word worship, this is what would come to their minds. It meant a place, the temple, because that's where God's presence was. And as a worshiper, you would bring sacrifices to the temple, to which you would hand those over to the priest, and they would offer them. Temple, worshipers, sacrifices, priests. Now, generally, the way we do church, when we come together and we call it a worship service, I often think, hmm, if that's what the words actually mean, and that was probably what it meant in the time of Jesus, well, then when you look at what we're doing today, what about that? Where, see, the coolest thing is that today, through Jesus and the Spirit, Right? The temple didn't go away. It got changed. Right? Paul says, don't you know that you, you are the temple, both individually and corporately. You, this is not, this isn't churches, right? I'm sure you've heard a million times as the people gathered, right? Church is not this building thing. But when we gather, something unknown, strange, and remarkable happens. The living God is in our midst. When these particular kind of humans come together, something unknown, strange, and remarkable happens. The living God is in our midst. And that should make a difference. Somehow, some way, right? And then you remember these verses that Jesus said, um, actually to the woman at the well, right? There's a time coming when you'll never go to this place or go to that place, but God's going to make a new kind of worshiper that worships in spirit and in truth. But then Peter, Peter wrote these remarkable words. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable or in some translations pleasing to God through Jesus. There it all is. When you come together as a worshiper, 
We are living stones. We would come first as worshipers, but once we assemble as living stones, we make the temple. And once we're here, we become priests. Priests to one another who are supposed to be offering sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Well, how many of you showed up today with sacrifices? Well, Mark, what do you mean sacrifice? Well, the old time it was, it was food stuff, right? And animals and whatever. But the wildest thing was to discover is that the sacrifices didn't go away either. Worshippers didn't go away. The temple didn't go away. The priesthood didn't go away. We are all of those three things. But it's as though sacrifices disappeared. But now look at this. What are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God? Which I just brought this picture back. For this reason is because this is worship. This is worship. And now let me help you understand why. First of all, you know this passage, right? Offer, in, in fact, he says, in view of my great mercy, having been loved first in an extraordinary way, what would be our worship response to that kind of love? He said that you would offer your very selves as a living sacrifice, an oxymoron. How can it be living and how can it be a sacrifice? But the idea behind it is that you've surrendered your every bit of yourself to be available to love someone else. To which he says, this is worship that is holy and pleasing to God. And now the NIV in its newest version says, because this is your true and proper worship. My father was on the NIV committee translating the Bible for 30 some odd years. And when my mom and him were going through this particular passage, you know, some of you might have seen it says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Another translation might say logical act of worship. That's closer because it's logike. But my mother says, Gordon, I think what all Paul's trying to say, it's the only worship that makes sense now in view of all that he's done for us is that the foundation it's giving away our lives for one another, which, of course, look at what Paul wrote. Therefore, walk in love as Christ Jesus has loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice because he did it for us first. That we would do the same. But yea, there is a music one, sort of, kind of. This is the passage we read this morning, right? Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Well, you can praise speaking, but it's really fun to praise with music. You need to stand up? <laughs> Just don't want you to fall asleep on me. I know I'm being longer than maybe you're used to. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm close. Okay, but you see, even that is a sacrifice. So it's right that we call the music time worship. But it's only one aspect of worship. At the heart of it, it's worshipers bringing sacrifice, wherein we become, in his presence, priests who would offer them. So again, did you come bringing anything? You see... Oh, and then there's one more here. Paul also says this when he was <clears throat> in prison and the Philippians had brought him stuff. He says, the gifts that you brought me are a fragrant offering and sacrifice pleasing to God. Do you see how many times we've seen the word pleasing in all of these passages? 
So here's the thing. When we come together to worship, what we call a worship service, what sacrifices do we bring? Have you ever once thought about on your way to church, wow, Lord, of all those different sacrifices, what might I bring and offer? And if I have nothing, at least I'll bring my body today. Maybe I can touch somebody. Maybe I can speak to somebody. Maybe I can offer babysitting to somebody. Maybe I can come sit with somebody this week and offer that. So the sacrifices, right? We can bring our body, gifts, sharing, doing good, praise. But then here's this other really fun and wild thing is that Paul, remember in 1 Corinthians 12 when it says the body of Christ? And you get to 14, at the end of all the gifts of the Spirit, he says, when you come together, each of you has. Each of you has. When you come together, do you think about what each of you has? You know the people who mostly come with something? Is the pastor, the worship team, and some Sunday school teachers. Imagine if you were coming for a potluck and the only ones who brought were the pastor, the worship team, and a few Sunday school teachers. That would be bad, particularly if you were seriously hungry. But the point is, every one of us, three times in the Old Testament, God said, do not come empty-handed when they came to offer sacrifice. How many of us come week after week, month, year after year with nothing? Mostly it's because we didn't have a mindset for it, right? This is not to shame or guilt or anything. I did it for billions of years too. Well, not quite a billion. I guess I'm not quite that old, am I? <laughs> the other thing was that what also radically transformed our church is that if the command is the foundational, most important one command, every time we came to church, we were always asking the Lord, how can I love today as you have loved me? See, if everybody comes in a passive wanting to get mode, nobody gets anything. But if everybody was coming with sacrifices to worship or thinking about, Lord, how have you been loving me lately so that I can come and love others when I come to church? Man, there's joy and fun and all kinds of stuff going on, right? But here's the other really, really, really fun thing is that when we come together and we bring how we've been loved and we bring the gifts and sacrifices God is in our midst, and he brings. He distributes gifts, too. And gifts we can't bring. Healing, miracles, prophecy, faith. Might I even say tongue and interpretation? It's in the book. All I'm saying is that even that is a gift we can't do without him, right? He has to bring it. But here's again why it's being called potluck, right? Is because if you're actually thinking about this, is that when everybody showed up in the building, what eventually happens is that as we're gathered together, we would start sharing the gifts that we brought. And all the time, it's worship, 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 such that we would transform it to think of it as being a worship potluck. Every time we gather as a worship potluck, and sometimes we have food potlucks. But worship potlucks should be just as much fun because when everybody brings just like the fabulous joy of a food potluck, there's crazy abundance and crazy variety. 
And imagine what can happen when everybody comes. The amazing abundance and variety of God's love that's being manifested. And imagine the joy. What a difference it would make. This is why I want to suggest to you again that this is why people would come. And what actually happens, it turns into a love potluck. Where again, we're offering all this stuff. That's why the picture occurs again. Then finally, what's most important is that it makes God visible again and loving with words and actions. I cannot tell you how many times that people encountered God, like people encountered Him through Jesus when we all started bringing stuff regularly. Then lastly, the love potluck actually becomes a love feast. That was Jude's word. When do you come together for your love feasts? It was still around food. And then the best part is afterwards, when we walk out, we're thinking, how can I love in all the different ways I was loved today? It spurs you on to love and good deeds. Oh, that was cool. That was fun. Wow, I can't wait to go do that for somebody else. And just maybe you'll start being known by your love. Make sense? So, wow, it's quarter of. That was generally my limit, and I did it. But I do want to tell you one story to just illustrate, because where this finally boils down to is how do we do it? See, once we got this understanding, we really labored together, like, how do we do this? And I grew up in a tradition just like yours where we do communion once a month and most of the time we pass the trays around, right? Everybody be somber. Anyway, (laughs) I don't mean that disrespectfully. But it was really kind of having a private experience in public. Communion, right? You're all just kind of doing your thing. But you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is trying to correct them, they were at a meal. It was the way they were behaving, the rich, especially at that meal that Paul had so much issue with. That's actually what it meant to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. It's not that somehow you've got some unconfessed sin. It was that there were people in that gathering in Corinth who were treating one another in such a way that was not loving at all. And he says, how dare you take this that says we lay our lives down for one another. That was the unworthy manner. Has nothing to do with you doing some sort of unconfessed sin stuff. You realize, if anything, it's if you really feel like you're full of sin, this is the best thing because he wants to come and he wants to forgive you. You don't have to get all clean before you can do it. Okay, I've totally like freaked you out. You can take that up with Bill if you get mad. (laughs) If you get mad at me. <laughs> Sorry, I just put a... <laughs> as one deer said to another deer that had a target on it, bummer of a birthmark, dude. <laughs> I just put a target on his back. Anyway, all right, come on, Mark, finish. So we were trying to figure out what to do, and then one time, for the first, as an adult, somewhere in those mid, early, mid-90s, I went to an Anglican service. Never been to one in my life. 
Been to a few Catholics, never an Anglican, right? So you're up and down, similar kind of stuff. But then it came time for the table at the end. And I went, wait, what? Where's the trays? Well, there was people up here with the elements, right? And everybody got up one pew at a time and got into the center aisle and had to walk. And it was just like, bang! God, this is brilliant. Imagine if we finished every week Knowing that you weren't done when the message was over, that was just teeing up when you were going to come and be reminded of how he loved you first and then you turn around and love each other. Remember in Paul's version in 1 Corinthians 11, it's the only place where he says, do this in remembrance of me twice. So what we started doing is we went from once a month, we went to every week, and we went to coming up. And when you came up, the best part is you could look around and go, Lord, here's what I brought. Who would you have me give it to? So I'm walking up, and I'm looking to the left and to the right, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit, who needs this? Who needs that? Lord, what have I brought? Line me up with them. Maybe I just asked you. Ask the pastor, you know, if anybody has a need for this, that, or the other thing. Finally, I get up, and I take the elements, and I hear him say, do this in remembrance of me. The first time, I gave him thanks for what he did for me. But then when I turned and looked back, and I'm seeing all of you like I am right now, I hear him say, and now, Mark, go do this in remembrance of me the second time. And now I'm looking at all the faces and going, Lord, who, who, who? Well, imagine when every one of you were coming up here and you gave thanks for the way he loved you first, and then you turn around and you go, okay, Lord, who? And the thing is, is before, right, sometimes one or two people might be up front for a little prayer and most of the rest of us just exit what it did in our church is that it created opportunities to be priests who offer the sacrifices, remembering the primary first one. So then we turn and we start moving around, and then church was full of life. People sharing this, sharing that, doing this, doing that. People are crying, people are laughing, joy all over the place as we're doing all this, and it would take another 15, 20 minutes to get people out of the building because they were having botluck but it was a love potluck. And it was amazing when everybody came with and not empty-handed. So final, quick little story. So one day we're doing this because here's the, the last point is that what we discovered is how many times it would be a prophetic revelation of God's love for somebody, meaning that he knows you came today with a need and you're saying, God, I just, I, I have this need. I don't know what to do. Would you please help me? So... One of the guys, <clears throat> there was a guy up front. A guy came up to him and he said, man, dude, can you just pray for me? My wife and I, we were fighting and arguing all the way to church today because um, we've just been really foolish with our money and we didn't pay our bill, our utility bill, and tomorrow morning they're going to shut it off if we don't pay them first thing in the morning. And can you just pray for me? Well, the guy he's asking to pray for his birthday was the day before. He's in his 40s, and his father still gives him $500 for his birthday. My grandfather always gave me five bucks from the day I was five till the day he died. It's like, Grandpa, what about inflation, for Pete's sake? <laughs> Who on earth gets 500 bucks from his parents? Every, I'm, I, I couldn't believe it. He spent 350 of it. 
So he says, Lord, what can I bring? Well, I got what I needed for birthday. So he put the $350 cash in his pocket and brought it as his sacrifice. So this guy, I don't know what to do. We can't pay. We got to do it tomorrow. I don't know what God's going to do. Can you just help me? Meanwhile, he reaches down in his pocket, grabs the guy's hand, and puts this wad of bills in his hand. And the guy goes, dude, what's that? Like, maybe it's the answer to your prayer. So he, he quickly counts it. And he goes, oh, my God. I love when they do this. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. It's like, well, tell me. Maybe I will believe it. <laughs> and he says, the bill is for $344. And then Mike, in his quick humor, goes, well, can I have the $6 change? <laughs> I could still get me a birthday ice cream cone. <laughs> and that's how I found out about it, because they were laughing so hard. I went over to go, what's all the joy about? And you realize how much fun during church? Finally, at one point, we had to reserve one Sunday a month just to tell stories. Because of all the amazing things that were happening inside and outside. And there was so much stinking joy. And this is why I remember when I said, they said, come to church. God is there and you'll get loved. I pray that that would be your invitation someday. And may God bless you as you try to sort out, how do we do this in West's context? I just wanted to challenge you, though. If we're going to call it a worship service, then let's make it the whole thing. A worship service. So, Father, thank you for the chance to talk. Most of them have hung in there with me longer than they're used to. But on the other hand, Father, I just pray that this would really, really, really stimulate their thinking. Because this is what spurred us on to loving good deeds. Is that as we were watching them, doing them, that's how we learned how to love. So bless this community, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hear these, hear these words from, from God's heart to ours. West Church, you are, you're my chosen ones. I picked you. You're my holy ones. You're my saints. You're special to me. You are my beloved ones. I love you, West Church. So clothe yourselves, dress yourselves, wear, put on. compassionate hearts. Dress yourself with kindness. Dress yourself with humility. Dress yourself with gentleness. Dress yourself with patience. Put up with one another. If 
anyone has a complaint or a gripe against another person, forgive each other as I, the Lord, have forgiven you. As I have forgiven you, that's how you have to do it too. And above all these things, my church, West Church, put on love. Dress yourself with love. Because that binds everything together in absolute perfect harmony. I love you, West Church. Share with one another and go in peace. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.